someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short shoot. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals and published authors, and we strongly appreciate small scale batch distilled spirits. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we are very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are things? I'm doing all right, Christopher. Uh, it's uh, late summer. It's been pretty hectic. Got an unexpected reprieve recently, which was, has been helpful, but uh, just keeping my head above water. How about you? Yeah, same thing. Just got back from a trip to the States and got another six-weeker coming up, so I got over my jet lag just in time to start it all over again. Yeah, that's really the best part, isn't it? I feel like we now travel so much that it almost doesn't matter which time zone we're in. We're just sort of awake when we're awake and asleep when we're asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really quite true. I don't know which way is up half the time. But anyways, why don't we get into today's topic? What are we talking about today? I'm excited about this. Today, we're going inside the still. And by that, I mean the chemistry of what's happening during distillation, which we've talked about it before. And we talked about it, I think, especially on the cuts episode, where the idea was basically what happens inside the still is magic. And we're going to now try to de demystify that and explain what is happening inside the still and why that matters for these beautiful spirits that we love so much. And it is incredibly important because we take a lot of this for granted. Let me just start with a question here. What is the difference between pot and column stills? Yeah, uh, those are the two main still designs, and we typically differentiate spirits by those two designs. And of course, there are variations known as hybrid stills and that kind of thing. But essentially, a pot still is a, let's just call it a kettle that you're boiling, and the steam that comes off gets collected and reconstituted into liquid in another vessel. Right. The steam's only escaping one time. That's a pot. A column is... It's what it sounds like. It is a continuous still. So as the steam rises in the column, it is turning back into liquid. It is hitting hot metal plates and re-evaporating. And that is the way that a continuous still works. And they're very, very efficient. These were developed uh, nearly 200 years ago by a gentleman named, and I hope I'm pronouncing his first name right, Aeneas Coffee. So the coffee still is a name and there's Nika Coffee Whiskey. Uh, named after that because I use a coffee still for that. And that entered the coffee still or the continuous column still entered commercial use in Japan in 1910. And today, just to give you an idea of scale, the largest coffee still in the world is in Nigeria. It's used to refine crude oil because this is what you're doing. It's a refinery still basically. So we don't want uh, impure gasoline. We want pure gasoline. So a column still is used. This still in Nigeria is 112 meters tall. That is taller than a football field. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> it is nuts. And it was all one piece when they stood it up too, which is pretty incredible. You can find video of it online. 
Oh, we might need to put that in the in the show notes. That is that is incredible. I mean, I've seen in in southern Kagoshima at the uh, what's now the Tsunuki Distillery, the whiskey distillery for Mars. They have their old column still, and it's become kind of a museum piece. And it's seven stories tall, and it dwarfs everything else in the town. Sure, at seven stories, you can imagine 112 meters. That's that's pretty impressive. And it is designed to for efficiency, right? And we're used, of course, to make alcohol. We're talking a focus on alcohol at the expense of everything else, namely character, flavor, aroma. But let's keep talking about still design here. And let's focus, of course, on pot stills, because today the theme here is really focusing on the chemistry, the the inner workings of what we find to be really interesting. And that's mostly batch distilled products. So can you run us through the, the key parts of a pot still, please? Sure. So I described a pot still as a kettle, and that's a huge oversimplification. But essentially, you have what be what would be known as the pot in uh, Scotch whiskey traditions. They basically look like onion, like onions. They're they're these these large pots, uh, copper pots in in Scotch whiskey traditions. Uh, but to heat that pot, you need a heat source. So you usually either have a steam or direct fire uh, heating source to heat that pot and boil what's inside of it. And then on the top of the pot, you have the, 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 the line arm or the swan neck of the still, which is how the steam escapes from, from the boil in the kettle. And then once it's gone through that swan neck, it is recondensed in, uh, there are a number of different styles of condensers, but one that we often talk about in shochu production is known as a worm tub, where you have this coil of tubing that the steam goes down into and it's sitting in cold water. And so the the metal itself is cool. So when the steam hits it, it becomes liquid again. And that's how you capture the distillate from the pot still. Yeah. And there are a lot of distilleries that have some of those old coils that I think they used to be out of, they used to be made out of tin much of the time. And they tend to just be kind of sitting around in a corner as kind of an antique of, of, you know, it's a relic of distillation memories past. But I guess everything that Stephen just talked about right now is quite interesting in so far as going all the way back to Mr. Coffee's invention, which was patented in Ireland back in 1830 to today. I mean, if Mr. Coffee was alive today and he saw the stills that are in use right now, both column and pot stills, he of course would be impressed by the gigantic leaps in technology. But I don't think he would have a hard time understanding what's going on. In other words, the basic principles of distillation have not changed really all that much at all. We are really sticking to what he developed in terms of column distillation and to a a far more general sense, the, the properties of distillation have not changed really at all. Now, that kind of leads me to focusing on that last point I just said, what is actually happening inside of the still? I mean, if you were talking to a novice, how would you explain the process of distillation to them? Sure. Uh, Great question. So let's pretend we're on a distillery tour. Cool. Generally, uh, your fermentation, which is where you've used yeast to convert sugars into alcohol in whatever tradition it is, that's what you're doing. And you then put that fermentation into the still. In most traditions around the world, that is a a submerged or a liquid fermentation. And in the case of, for example, 
whiskey or rum, it's going to be virtually completely liquefied. In the case of shochu or awamori, it may have some residual solids in it because those are part of the fermentation. But generally, you put that liquid, whether it's kind of a porridge or an actual liquid into the still, you boil it, you heat it up until it boils. Now, what's in that fermentation is not just water and not just alcohol. It's all sorts of organic compounds and other things. Uh, and all of those things have different boiling points. So when you're, when you're boiling, you have uh, things that boil at lower temperatures will come out of the still first. And then things that boil a little bit higher will come off. And then finally, things that boil at the highest temperatures will come off. So what's the composition of the liquid that's coming out of the still at any given time is, is evolving. It's changing almost constantly. Uh, and so just to keep it simple for now, when you think about a whiskey or brandy or some Western tradition, and you're talking about the stripping rum, you're usually getting the spirit up to, let's say, 20 to 25% alcohol because the fermentations are relatively low alcohol fermentations. Right. So 75 to 80% of what's coming out of the still is something other than alcohol because your alcohol percentage is 20 to 25% once the run is finished. For shochu and awamori, the genshu or the raw distillate that's coming off through a single pot distillation is usually somewhere between, I would say on average, 37 to 44% alcohol, depending on what you're making. So again, more than 50%, more than 55 to even 60% of what is coming out is water and other organic compounds, not alcohol in a single pass through the still. So Christopher, what's going on in that process? What is coming over? What is what is happening? Yeah, I think this is where all of those explanations sort of kind of fail us because it's just this mystical stuff going on and people are like, okay, never going to think about that again. And that perhaps is a, a good way to do it because it is a very complex process going on inside. But let's um, let's do something that actually is is completely theoretical and is actually practically impossible. Let's imagine that we had a binary solution that is simply water and ethanol and nothing else. Let's imagine that we put that into the still and according to the common explanation of what is happening through pot distillation, you would expect the ethanol to come off at 78.4, 78.5 degrees Celsius and nothing but ethanol to come out of the still at that temperature. And then once all of the ethanol was depleted, you would expect that the temperature inside the still would ramp up pretty quick and then you'd get nothing but distilled water coming out after that. And it would be first the ethanol and then the water. But of course, that's not what happens. Of course, we would never need to distill something that was a, an ideal mixture, such as ethanol and water in the first place, because that never happens. What is happening here in reality is that all components of a mixture, everything in solution affects everything else. And that is incredibly logical when you hear it like that. But as Stephen kind of referred to before, all of these different components of the, of the mixture exert what is called vapor pressure on each other. And so to keep things incredibly simple, the more alcohol you have in this mixture that goes into the still, 
the closer to 78.4 degrees Celsius that the mixture will start to boil. However, in the case of making a, a brandy or a whiskey, as Stephen mentioned before, you're actually dealing with a far larger payload of water, meaning that you're going to be exerting, there's going to be more vapor pressure exerted by those components of the solution, which will change, it'll move the boiling point higher. And that is an acknowledgement that basically the alcohol and the ethanol, or the ethanol and the water are married to each other. They spent time together. They are quite difficult to pull apart. Now, we talk often about volatility in terms of distillation. And ethanol is often described as having a standard volatility and everything else is judged, at least in beverage alcohol, in terms of where, how quickly it boils or at what temperature it boils. Relatively low means high volatility. Relatively high temperature up closer to water means low volatility. We judge everything on that scale in distillation. So these volatilities, when mixed together, present a very, very complex mathematical puzzle. But the thing to just understand is that everything is interacting with everything. The further apart volatilities are, the easier they are to separate through distillation. The closer they are together, the harder they are to separate. Fortunately, alcohol and ethanol have different volatilities. Unfortunately, they're actually, in the grand scheme of things, they're actually pretty close together on that spectrum, but not close, close enough that you can't separate them through distillation, which is a good thing for humanity. That was great, Christopher. I, I learned so much listening to you, and you reminded me of so many things that I'd learned and forgotten. And of course, with your binary solution, solution there isn't ever that situation. You don't need to boil something that's already got all of the impurities removed. I mean, distillation is the capturing the essence of something, right? That's the entire purpose. So, but when you don't have that binary solution, you it's much more complex. You're talking about what hundreds of organic compounds and things in a still when, when you're doing a, when you're putting a fermentation in there, right? We've had active organisms that have been converting things and creating congeners and all sorts of things, right? And from your example, your very simple example is that the water and the alcohol are acting on each other inside the still, right? That's right. But everything else in that solution is doing the same thing. It might be very small quantities of things, but everything's interacting with everything else. And so you don't have ethanol vaporizing and wafting out of the still at 78.4 degrees Celsius. And you don't have water vaporizing only at 100 degrees Celsius. There's so much else going on inside the still. Absolutely. And this is something that is very important for the master brewer distiller or whoever in the distillery is tasked with controlling the still, the importance of all of the heating mechanisms, the importance of all the cooling mechanisms, and just having a very clear understanding of the different volatilities of all these congeners. You have the, the high volatility congeners that come off quite early in the distillation, things like acetaldehyde. Um, we've all heard of methanol, of course, which is the boogeyman here, and a bunch of other stuff. That stuff comes off really early. You want to control the still in a way that you are able to subtract that, keep that out of the heart's cut or the main spirits cut of your distillate. 
And then you have lower volatility congeners such as, you know, the fusel oils, which are often a boogeyman as well. The, a lot of your higher alcohols, um, a lot of fatty acids, which are often valued, phenols, um, geez, and, and of course, water. They're at 100 degrees Celsius. And the interesting thing is that, is that the high volatility guys that come off early, those can kind of be dealt with. You can just kind of leave the tank open to air. You can age it in oak and those things will kind of chill out and dissipate and evolve. But it's the low volatility congeners towards the tails that can really get you. And you got to be really careful with those. It's interesting because as you and I both know and love, especially in sweet, sweet potato shochu production, a lot of the oomph and the, the funk and the character in sweet potato shochu comes off really close to the end, which is why they run all the way into the single digits ABV a lot of the time. But it is something that, again, to get back to your point, everything affects everything. Mm -hmm. And you got to keep a very close eye on this process. Not only is it very, very difficult and art meets science, but especially if we're going back to Shochu and Aomori, you don't get another chance with a pot still. It's one and done, baby. That's it. What you have is what you get, which makes this process that is native to Japan such a beautiful thing. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the conversation that we had on our last episode with uh, Chris from the Denver Distillery. He was really afraid to let his tails run on his sweet potato shochu distillation because he didn't know what to do with those compounds, with those congeners that would come out at the end. And so he cut early. Yeah. He was, he, he's going to try it. He's, he, he's going to see what he can do. But uh, he understood that in shochu, it's very wide cuts and there aren't really cuts. So he wanted to do it the traditional way. And he was worried about what would happen if he'd let it run too long. But uh, yeah, I would be nervous about that too. Hopefully he'll figure that out. Now, is it fair to say though, when you're talking about Western traditions that when you put those low wines, the, the stripping run back into the still and you're doing your spirits run, then your boiling point is going to be lower because you've got more alcohol. The other thing is just as kind of you alluded to before, everything affects everything. And now that you're, you're starting with a higher concentration of ethanol in the solution, in the mixture for the second run through a pot still, everything changes. There's more ethanol, meaning that the boiling point is going to come lower to that 78.4 degrees Celsius threshold. And, you know, if you're not dealing with that simple binary solution I was talking about before, and you're dealing with other organic compounds in there, those are also going to all affect the, it's, it's something called um, the, the partial vapor. And you add all these things together and you get Dalton's law. And it's, it's a, a whole bunch of mathematics that I hope I never have to study again, but it is possible to calculate every single small aspect of this and actually plot it out on a chart. Again, another nerd alert here, and I know we've got a bunch of these in this episode, but you also have to think about solubility. And there are certainly components of the, the, you know, the stripping run, the low wines, as you just said, that are more alcohol soluble. And then there are components that are much more water soluble. And so, you know, for instance, the, the components or the compounds that are more water soluble than ethanol soluble will have a lot higher, they'll have higher volatilities once the alcohol has been removed. And this is just a whole nother thing that folks need to get used to, that they have to really experience many, many times in order to know how the 
the ingredients are going to behave, how the distillation is going to behave. They have to pay attention to all of the temperatures in the microclimate of that distillery surrounding the still. It's, it's an obscene amount of data points that you have to be aware of. And one of the reasons that running the still is not a job that just anybody in the distillery can do. I think that's very, very fair to say. There's usually a person, maybe a couple of people who are allowed to go near the still. And otherwise, everybody else is on production, right? On the, the everything that leads up to that point, the distillation process. It's pretty damn complicated. And anybody who feels really confident doing it, I mean, my hat comes off to them. No question. I've been working at Yamato Zakuda for 10 years now, and they've never let me touch the still. I, I get <laughs> to watch. Hot. Don't touch. <laughs> no. Build your hands in your pockets. I, I can I can observe what's happening, but I've never been taught that part of the process. And after 10 years, I guess I'm still not ready. So uh, definitely hats off to anybody who can, can run a still expertly. When I did some experimentations at uh, Moto Distillery in, in Brooklyn with some sake lees shochu that we were trying to make, the first batch came out pretty good. The second batch, that must have been beginner's luck because the second batch, we just scalded the hell out of it. We, oh, well, did you? We, we, roasted, we roasted that fermentation. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, that's how it works. Yeah. So I guess in whiskey or brandy production, just talk, thinking about pervasive Western traditions, you've got water evaporating at lower temperatures. Is that right? And because the, that's because the wash is going to the still at what, six to 8% alcohol, and you have a relatively high boiling point for the mixture in the pot, especially when it's, uh, when compared with a koji-based fermentation, which is typically, what, 13 to 18% alcohol? Is that right? Am I, am, I, am I explaining that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, you are. You definitely are. I mean, when you talk about whiskey, brandy, 8, 8%, 10%, 8 would be a little high for whiskey, I guess. Well, not always. I guess they, there are some um, scotch distilleries that have it up around 10 but yeah, that's essentially what we're talking about. And with uh, Koji-assisted fermentations, it's going to be much higher. All right. So let's work off another simplified explanation. But this is something we hear all the time. You put beer in a pot still, it becomes whiskey. Right. But beer fermentations are, what, 5 or 6% alcohol on average? So if we pump that beer into a pot still, what temperature will the wash begin to boil at? Is that, and what's the final ABV after a single distillation and something like that? Okay, so the at five or six percent, the boiling point should theoretically be around ninety-five degrees Celsius, and the distillate will probably first come initially come off the still at around forty percent ABV. That number, of course, is going to drop to under twenty percent. It'll get into the teens if you collect every single drop that comes out of the still out of the condenser. Um, but it is calculable. I mean, there's obviously a lot of math behind all of this with requisite deference paid to Raoult's law and of course mole fractions and how those are calculated. But fortunately, it can be more easily understood with a simple chart. Yeah. So th that'll be in the show notes for sure, because uh, I'm going to need to reference it. So have a look after, after listening to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's something called a vaporization and condensation chart. And these have been made for years and plotted out by people much, much smarter than me. But basically, it's a, it's a y-axis and an x-axis. So you have your y-axis pointing up, and that has temperature in, going from 0 to 100, going up the y-axis. And then sprawling out to the right on the x-axis is ABV, 
going from zero to theoretically 100, although I'm sure everybody has heard that you can't get to 100. And that's true in a beverage alcohol setting. You, I mean, it is theoretically possible, but you're going to have to use like, you're going to have to add benzene to it and all, or other things in order to get to pure ethanol. So that's not really what people are going for. They tend to shoot for like 96 with a column still. Not really possible with batch distillation. So we're going to put that aside for now. Anyways, X and Y axis. And basically what we need to do in order to be able to calculate how what types of alcohol levels and, and boiling points we're talking about here is take a rugby ball and lean it in that lean one tip at the end of the x-axis axis, and then the, the other tip of the rugby ball, lean it against the top of the y-axis and then trace a line around the whole thing. So you're going to have this kind of rugby rugby ball shaped two bent curved lines that meet at two points. And what we have here is on the lower curve, it's a plotted line of boiling points that are relative to temperature on the y-axis and ABV on the x. And then the outward facing, the outward arching curve, the top of the rugby ball, I guess, is a plotted line of the dew points or when the vapor will condense back into liquid. Okay. So rugby balls and alcohol, it's all starting to make sense. I, I think I under understand that Australia a lot better. <laughs> Do you understand the appeal of rugby now? There you go. <laughs> I do. Yeah, it I do. certainly isn't the broken hips and busted jaws. That's for sure. The, the, these are pretty big graphs, though, if a rugby ball fits on them, right? That's I need to I understand the scale for when I put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, you're good. Well, you're good. That's just the shape. I don't know if you need to do it uh, to scale. Um, and we can make the chart a little bit smaller because obviously you don't need zero degrees on there because nothing boils at zero degrees you might want to sure. start the y-axis at the origin at like 70 or 75 for the more volatile stuff gotcha and then up to up to 100 and then you know anyways it will it, i'm gonna i'll draw one up i'm still wrapping my head around all this because i've never never seen one of these charts and i i don't own a rugby ball so um let's just say we start with an awamori fermentation all right and that's about 18% alcohol by volume. So when we say ABV, we're, we mean alcohol by volume. It's a, it's an acronym that we use a lot, but just in case people are confused by that. So you find that ABV on the x-axis and go straight up to the underside of the rugby ball. Right. Mid to high 80s for the initial boil. That's right. Then we head horizontally to the outer curve and straight down to the x-axis again. And then you're at high 60s ABV for the distillate when it comes off the still. Is that right? Am I understanding this concept? That's exactly correct. Well, look at me. Yeah. Wow. You can be taught. You're you're bringing you're oh. bringing math back in, into my life. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's a it's a whole lot more fun to to deal with all of this mathematics when it's related to booze. I gotta say, if they had only known that when they were trying to teach it to me, you know, algebra and the like back in how old was I? Probably ninth grade or something, eighth grade. But uh, anyways, let's go back to still design for a bit. Now that we have this kind of basic understanding of how there is rhyme and reason to everything that's happening inside of the still, and a lot of master brewers, distillers have figured it out and they know how to tweak things accordingly, but still design is incredibly important here. And 
I don't need to tell most people listening to this, but there are nearly as many still shapes, neck shapes, line arm lengths and angles as there are distilleries in the world. Why is that? It all depends on the distillery's space, of course. We've seen uh, line arms going like through the rafters of of, of uh, small distilleries and coming back down yeah. into the into the worm tub just to fit the space. Uh, but it's also their resources and what, what their goals are with the distillate. And that third one is probably most important, what their goals are, because the still design affects so much in what the distillate's going to be like when it comes out. And if you just look at the shape of a pot still with the necks and the line arms, you'd be really hard pressed to find two distilleries that have those dimensions exactly the same way. Yeah. Unless it, unless the two distilleries were owned by the same company, I suppose you're not going to have the same thing twice. Really, they are so unique everywhere you go, and they are adaptable. There's all manner. There's all there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can jury rig them, and a lot of distilleries do. I mean, our good friend Yanagi Tasang, he he does crazy things with his pots still, and so does um. Uh, Mr. Yano over at Shoro Distillery. But uh, basically, a lot of what's going on, especially with newer stills, and this is, of course, true for craft distilling all around the world, batch distillation, they're trying to find new ways to affect the final outcome of the distillate. And one huge thing here that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of before is the concept of reflux. Reflux is basically how you get your pot still and and of course a continuous still to vaporize the mash the moromi the wash whatever you want to call it and then have it turn back into liquid and to do that repeatedly and it all comes down to something that is referred to as a reflux ratio a reflux ratio is the ratio between how mu- how many times how the volume of reflux within the still, meaning this cyclical process of vaporization, condensation, back to vaporization, back to condensation again, the ratio of that volume of activity versus the amount of distillate that's coming out of the pipe on the back end of the condenser. And if you have a very high reflux ratio, that means that you have less distillate coming out at any one time compared to all of the action, the reflux action inside the still. So this is an incredibly desirable thing for many spirits traditions. And stills are set up to oftentimes increase the amount of reflux. You might see a still with a crazy giraffe long neck, you know, before it gets to the line arm that that spreads over to the side to the um, to the condenser. That is intended to create enough temperature differential that on the way up that chimney, there's going to be a good chance that some of the steam in there is going to recondense and drip back down the sides of the of that neck and get hit with steam again and revaporize in the and you're what you're doing is you're getting a purer and purer absent of more and more of those fusel oils that can come off late a purer distillate that's going to finally find its way into the line arm and into the condenser. And so that's really important. This is a very, very important consideration for a lot of traditions around the world. 
That's right. And I mean, you'll see really, really short still necks where they're trying to capture a really rich distillate. True. And then you'll see really long still necks, right, where they want a lighter distillate. Yeah. And then the line arm itself, the geometry of that matters, where if it immediately takes a hard more than 90 degree angle back down toward the condenser. Yeah. You're trying to once that vapor goes over, you want it to stay. Yeah. But if if you send that line arm over at less than a 90 degree angle and it's angling up away from the condenser, then that is an additional opportunity for reflux. Exactly. To give you a, a lighter, cleaner distillate. So that still design, you'll and you'll see this especially in whiskey distilleries, you'll see one still with a less than 90 degree line arm and another with a more than 90 degree line arm. Yeah. Because they want a rich spirit type and a light spirit type when they're when they're run, making their runs. Right. And this happens in Shochu and Awamori as well. Whenever a distiller has more than one still, they're very likely playing around with with lengths of necks and and uh, angles of line arms. True. Uh, so yeah, it, it happens all over all over the place. But maybe walk us through reflux in a single pot distilled tradition like Shochu or Awamori. Well, the interesting thing about at least in terms of old school shochu and awamori production, they're really not trying to get a whole lot of reflux. Um, they really do intend to create a, an earthier, fuller, uh, deeper bodied spirit. And they're not trying to get that cyclical reflux in there all the time. This is also true for spirits traditions in other parts of the world. I'm thinking of any spirit that is going to be aged for a long time, anything that is going to spend a lot of time in wood, yeah, go ahead. Let, let's get a bunch of those fusel oils in there. Those can be really interesting over time. Um, it, it's, they can add a lot of character to the distillate. I mean, uh, mezcal, right? They don't really go for a whole lot of reflux much of the time. I think a lot of really, really interesting rum mm -hmm. that you and I both love those are similar traditions in that they're not also depending on reflux, unlike vodka, of course, or modern vodka ever since the coffee still was invented. And of course, almost all Korean soju, which really wouldn't exist today if it weren't for continuous distillation and extremely high, extraordinarily high reflux ratios. That's right. You're getting up to what, 90, 96%? ethanol if they can yeah in these columns so yeah it's you're you're extracting virtually everything else all of the interesting character is gone by that point yeah completely let's let's uh just maybe shift gears once again okay in japan and this freaks people out sometimes uh stainless steel stills are the standard stainless steel pot stills are the standard in shochu and awamori but copper is ubiquitous in many other parts of the world Drew, what's what's that all about well yeah, I mean, copper was historically the go-to choice for a number of very good reasons. Hundreds of years ago, of course, they they didn't have, back when the coffee still was invented, they didn't have the tools we have today to shape and bend metal, for instance. So copper being so soft was a pretty logical choice there. And there's also the very valid point that it conducts heat very effectively. And... So this can be beneficial both in terms of heating the still up at the beginning of distillation. And then, of course, also heat transfer in the worm tub, as you mentioned before, where you're trying to cool the vapors down quickly and turn them back into liquid. So those were important considerations a long time ago. Yeah, but that's 
less of a concern in modern distilleries, right? I mean, we, we have more stable ability to heat and cool things. And I think that's part of the reason there are so many stainless steels found in Japan because copper doesn't have a long shelf life, right? Stainless steel is going, a stainless steel still is going to be serviceable for a lot longer before it needs to be repaired or replaced. That's definitely true. They're also easier to clean. And if you're doing direct fire, like if you're going to basically light a blowtorch using either natural gas or propane directly under the still, copper, you got to be real, you better have really thick gauged copper in order to be able to heat and then cool and then reflame, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, That stuff is not going to stand up incredibly well to that. So steel wins there as well. But, you know, whiskey makers in particular continue to use copper no matter what. And why? Because they're sexy as hell. <laughs> but um, <laughs> They are. <laughs> um, but, you know, more importantly, copper has been shown to react in very positive ways with other congeners in the wash to enhance flavor. And, of course, the one that everybody knows that it, it reacts with and actually removes sulfuric compounds like dimethyl sulfide, dimethyl trisulfide and hydrogen sulfide from the from the spirit especially as it's being condensed if you use a copper copper tubing in the worm tub as the last you know the kind of the plan of last resort you're going to remove most of those um off flavors they are considered to be off flavors because humans have a very very low threshold for tolerating them in spirits Sure, sure. No question. And it's all very true about copper and, and removing of sulfur compounds. But fortunately, shochu and awamori makers don't really have to worry too much about that since they work with polished, codified ingredients rather than intact grains like uh, are used to make malt. Right. So, it's a, I guess in that sense, they, the shochu makers can get away with making grain distillates using stainless stills because all of those uh, or many, most of the grain that contains those sulfuric compounds has been removed before fermentation. That's right. And I think anything that hasn't been, yeah, Koji does the rest of the work. Koji is magic. Am I allowed to say that? You sipping on anything good? You, you know, it's funny. Um, I am a triple pot distilled gin uh, made in Kagoshima, and it is run through a wooden pot still. Ah, there's a material we didn't talk about. That's right. Wooden stills are a thing here in Japan and, and in a few other places in the world, I guess. But um, maybe we'll save wooden pot distillation for a future episode. Uh, yeah, it's it's nice. I'm having it in a gin sonic. Uh, it's an experimental batch. It's really fun to try. Um, it's it's classic gin botanicals with some Japanese botanicals thrown in and uh, uh, 47% alcohol, which for me is the sweet spot for gin. All gins should be 47%. Call me a purist. <laughs> How about you? Are you sipping on anything? Yeah, I am. I am sipping a very small glass of Amagi Kokuto sugar rum. And this is something that I brought back from the United States recently on my most recent trip. It is decadent as all get out, 64% ABV. This was, of course, distilled in a stainless steel pot still. Um, you know, just that's kind of how it works down south in Japan. I know it's not as sexy as one of those shiny copper stills, but man, they're pretty good at their job, especially and importantly, when you put something tasty in it. Um, the fermentation has to be perfect because as we know, most of these traditions in Japan don't get to have a second distillation. So 
The folks here are very, very good at minding, entertaining, and coaxing along some of the most beautiful fermentations I've ever been been witness to um, that I've ever tasted, honestly. So uh, this is no different. This Amagi rum is pretty special. Yeah, that's, that is an absolutely uh, gorgeous rum from right here in Fukuoka. Uh, I hope the distillery has the good sense to make more of it someday. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a special one. And and I, I guess something we kind of left out of this episode, but just in to try to pull things together. Mop it up. If you've read between the lines of everything that we've said today about all of this chemistry and this math and, and the science behind what's happening inside the still, the interesting spirits in the world are pot distilled spirits. Things made in a pot still, they take care, they take time, they take a lot of know-how, and you end up with these absolutely beautiful drinks. However, you're going to pay more mm. because you get less yield from your fermentation than you do with a column. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of put that out there. We did talk about that briefly in our building a, a Koji Spirits bar that that uh, that pot distilled spirits tend to cost more, but they're also where all the interesting things are. And so I uh, just wanted to kind of finish with that. I don't know if you had any other thoughts, Christopher. No, I like it. I'm happy to I'm happy to join that team. I know that we'd get a lot of pushback by fans of like Pappy Van Winkle and that sort of thing, but bring it. I have no problem with that. Um, no, it's, I would, I would wager, I would argue that these drinks, these pot distilled drinks are harder to make well. To, to do it is one thing. To do it well, that's not easy. And most people can't do it well, at least not anytime soon. It's going to take a lot of trial and error. It's might be multi-generational, honestly. And, you know, that's why you get a lot of these these traditions around the world, they figure out a way to do it well, and they don't really stray from that. It, they they put in too much time, too much effort, too much blood, sweat, and tears to really give up on a good thing. And and there's sometimes there's hesitation to try new things. And and you know that for better or worse, the beauty is in in the obsession. It really is. It's it's uh it's an amazing thing to be able to batch distills something beautifully. Um, it's no mean feat and I'm happy to pay more for it. Yeah, completely agree with you, Christopher. And uh, obviously these are the interesting spirits, but uh, unfortunately my my wallet also um, feels, feels the pain. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for joining in. Apologies for the chemistry class. Hopefully we didn't put you to sleep. But if you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to it. It really helps others to find us. And also, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. You can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, please check out the website japandistilled.com for the show notes for this episode. We'll have that chart with the rugby ball on it. And also all the other episodes have show notes, which I think uh, are quite informative. And then we are still doing sometimes our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday, uh, most Tuesdays, many Tuesdays, evening time, 9 p.m. Eastern in the U.S. and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. 
This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up.